Hello, and welcome to Market Meditations, a podcast created to give you, our listeners, a way to join our journey on learning more about ourselves and, in general, how to become better human beings, which, of course, leads to us becoming better investors. I am, as always, joined by my co-host, Chris Heidel. All opinions expressed by Neil Modi, Chris Heidel, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Zoic Capital or Heidel Beal and Associates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that I make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Today's episode will feature a very special guest, Dirk Vandenboom. Chris and I both have the good fortune of getting a chance to invest in Dirk's first startup. He successfully led his last company to a more than $300 million acquisition by LabCorp in the prenatal diagnostic space. Throughout this episode, Dirk shares his thoughts on COVID-19, how he sees the market evolving for diagnostics, and the evolution of the market in general. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you do, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment, or both. Without further ado, let's get into it. Dirk, uh, welcome to the show. We didn't do an exact intro for you, so maybe you can give a brief, meaning please don't take 10 minutes, uh, introduction. <laughs> you know there's much more than 10 minutes for you, Dirk. <laughs> That's deserving. Well, good. I'll, I'll do that. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, thank you for having me. Um, I've been looking forward to this uh, ever, you know, Neil, you know, a um, long time ago, it feels like. I think you were the first listener, Dirk, ever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dirk. I don't, think, I don't think it was quite that, but uh, I definitely listened into the podcast and, and, and it helped me also, you, you know, it, it's important to understand um, how people think. And so you try to get uh, as much information as you can. And the podcast is one of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that being said, um, uh, I, uh, obviously I'm Dirk Vandenboom. Um, I'm, um, I would say a healthcare, um, executive with, uh, over a 20 year career, uh, mainly in genetic testing and diagnostics. Uh, I had a very long tenure in a previous company called Sequinome, publicly traded company that I joined pretty much right out of my uh, program uh, for molecular biology in Hamburg, Germany, um, where I did my PhD. And uh, it was on the times when we were still, you know, in the phase of trying to decipher the human genome and sequencing it and, and actually very similar to a lot of other programs that had ambitious goals uh, that weren't reached for a long time. It still spurred a lot of innovation in new technologies. And so uh, I spent my time developing mass spectrometry-based methods for genetic testing that uh, turned out to be, uh, you know, with, with colleagues, uh, one of the leading technology in the early 2000s for analyzing um, genetic uh, mutations and polymorphisms, as we call them, and then um, went on um, with Sequinome uh, as a company to develop and commercialize the first non-invasive prenatal test for um, fetal chromosomal aberrations um, uh, by just needing a maternal blood draw rather than an invasive procedure like amniocentesis and CVS. And so really um, the goal there was to avoid all the non-necessary invasive procedures that can lead to a fetal loss 
versus being able to just do a block draw and see if there truly is a potential issue. Um, and that was very rewarding and uh, very eye-opening as well in terms of how you do uh, um, medical innovation in the current healthcare environment and how you bring it to market and how you try to you know make it a financial success as well. And there's a lot of hurdles in that. And I'm sure we're going to uh, cover some of those topics today. So uh, I uh, also founded Juno. Um, and that's how Neil and I- Juno Diagnostics, to be clear, not therapeutics. Juno Diagnostics to be specific, yeah. <laughs> so nobody mixes it up with Juno Therapeutics. Um, but eventually we're going to be a multi-billion dollar company too, right, Neil? Uh, you know, um, my only worry about you is that you sell early, Dirk. Like uh, <laughs> somebody gives you an offer for 400 million and you're out. Like, um, and <laughs> So, um, and, and Chris, we have met in that regard as well. And, yeah. and really uh, there, and, and we'll talk more about that. It was uh, looking back at all the experiences that I'd done, uh, made before and, and, and seeing what is the next phase that we really need in order to bring high value medical information to patients and consumers and, and, and give, give them a better empowerment uh, to take care of their health and improving the patient-physician relationship, and a lot of it has to do with the marketizing access, reducing costs, uh, improving turnaround time, and uh, and, and uh, making access easier. So don't want to take too much of that uh, because we'll talk about that more, but that's, that's the background on me. So, you know, um, one of the reasons I was excited to work with you and um, was super happy to have you on this podcast is... I learn a lot from you every time. And I also wonder when I'm face to face with you, why you didn't become a basketball player. Um, <laughs> Dirk, just to let you know, could easily fit in as a center in the NBA uh, just as easily as he could be, you know, the head of a public company and sell to LabCorp like he did. Um, but in addition to that, at his last company, and I don't know what he can talk about and what he can't, he had to clean up a lot of uh, fraud that existed. And um, he did it in very short order. And got to a very uh, large exit for the shareholders and created even um, even had a couple divestitures that right right at the end that really added to the shareholder value. Um, and then when, you know, as soon as he's done with that 24-month sprint, he goes out and he starts another company with the exact same management team. Um, and so it's hard not to admire how he looks at the world. And um, so, you know, we were pretty excited to both invest in your company and get a chance to just spend more time talking to you. Um, I, I think most of the time when I'm with you, I want to listen, not talk. So <laughs> I was hoping today we might explore, you know, we might learn just a little bit about what you're doing at Juno with what you're happy to share about. Um, and um, also we, we might spend a little bit of time, you know, I, I hate to spend too much time on COVID-19, but you, you do have a particular insight as I've learned over the last seven hours where the calls about it with you. Um, <laughs> and maybe some of the upcoming trends in, um, you know, the next decade you're excited to see, uh, with breakthroughs in, in biology and uh, technology being commercialized, um, and actually coming yeah. to the market. Yeah. And, and I mean, at the same time, you know, as much as we all talk about COVID quite a bit, we have to, mm. because it has been extremely impactful on everybody, uh, not only on the business, uh, on businesses, but also on uh, every human being, right? Mm. It, uh, as we all know, being sheltered at home is not the easiest thing. Mm. 
uh, and uh, and uh, you know there's many people who are financially impacted, but there's it, it goes throughout um, uh, every aspect of life and. Uh, well, maybe let's kick off there with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll try and limit the subject to 10 minutes. Uh, Callahan, you can put us on a timer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, maybe take us through some of the dilemma you have with your father and newborn and, and you know, how you're thinking oh, sure. about these things and why it makes you pause and where your decision analysis is now. And Chris will ask lots of intelligent questions and I'll try and ask one. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's actually a, a great intro because usually things become the most tangible when you're personally impacted, right? That that has always been the case. It's it's, it's different if you look some at something from the outside or if you're on the inside. In this case, COVID, we're all on the inside because we all, everybody I talk to, um, is somehow impacted by it. And 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 from my perspective. Uh, I was so lucky to be uh, the father of a now seven and a half months old daughter. Uh, my father lives in Germany. And uh, so the natural thing for me was I wanted to fly to Germany with my family and uh, show him uh, uh, the next uh, offspring, if you want. And uh, and uh, he's 90 years old. And, and while we had this all planned out um, and uh, we're wanting to go, February comes by, you start to get uh, worried how, where, you know, where and how is this going to go. And March comes by and you can't travel anymore. And uh, I think the frustrating part for all of us was there was no testing available. I think a lot of people feel they had symptoms, but uh, they weren't sure that they have COVID, that they not have COVID, uh, couldn't get tested because of non-availability of testing or restrictions and who can get tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward, now you're entering the phase where, while you, you, if you're not actively infected, even if you could get tested for that, it's too late. How do I know if I have antibodies? What does it mean to have antibodies? But eventually, if we, we make this personal, I want to know when can I travel again with the family? When is it safe to travel? And when can I travel and not bring a potential COVID infection home to my dad, who at 90 years old, you know, will be, of course, in the high risk category. Mm-hmm. And so... If you take that and you 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 look at the landscape, uh, a lot of it reminds me of what was kind of the genesis of of Juno Diagnostics, uh, which is we need to disrupt and revamp how we think about diagnostic testing. And uh, in the you know go back to February March. Everybody is worried about getting infected, and in order to um, find out, do I just have flu, do I have a cold, whatever, you need to see a doctor, but nobody wants to go into an emergency room or urgent care room because if you don't have COVID, if you have something else, are you exposing yourself to the risk of getting infected by somebody else in that area, room, uh, that actually has it? And so people try to stay away from it because uh, you either you know try to you know, have your home remedies or you go through it, but you're not looking forward to it. And so having better ways of, you know, testing for, um, you know, infections and other things at home and then being able to triage uh, is kind of where we need to go. And I think this pandemic just reminds us of it, that we need to improve that whole workflow in um what information can you gather at home? What can you bring to a physician? So you're already triaged. And then that way the physician can look at 
everything, symptoms, any test results, and make a treatment decision right away versus the traditional model that we all go through, which is, I'm not sure I'm feeling well, I need to make an appointment, I need to see a doctor. The doctor takes my vitals, my symptoms, then uh, arranges for a blood draw that very likely they can't do themselves, and it's another appointment, and that sample needs to be sent to a centralized processing lab. A couple of days later, later, results come back, and then the doctor can make decisions. That's just highly inefficient, in particular with something as infectious as COVID. That's not what you want to go through. And I think in the future, and there will be a lot of innovation coming out of this, this all needs to be done very differently and having, if you want, uh, ubiquitous uh, at-home testing devices that can at least produce useful information to triage is where we need to go. Telehealth, I think, is another aspect that needs to become much more common. We're forcing this today uh, in, in the current environment because, because we're all sheltered at home. Uh, and, and that was probably the trigger um, for, for the whole world to be much more focused on what is it that can be done in a remote setting, right? It goes through all aspects of life, right? Telehealth is one, you know, as we all know, ordering food uh, online and having it delivered at home is, is the other side of this. But I think it will just show you how things will evolve forced by nature in, in this case. And I think it's gonna, a lot of it's gonna be a good change, but, change, but it was very, it was very uh, impactful to have to go through this. So, uh, to some degree, when we formed Juno, of course, we didn't we didn't think about a pandemic, but we thought about the exact issue that we're having right now, which is how do you give people an opportunity to do testing at home, create valuable information that will help manage their health and wellness, as well as potentially their disease, right, as, as you go forward. And that's that's a very important point that comes out of this. The other aspect which feeds into this that, you know, specific to COVID, we're all now worried about is, well, wh how do you go about antibody testing? What are you testing for? When do you test this? Yes. <laughs> and it's the same value proposition. How do I, can I, can I please sample this at home? Do, why do I have to go somewhere? A lot of this is done from venous blood. It could be done from finger prick blood. We need more home collection solutions for this so that I can do this. Uh, without, again, having to show up in any of those collection centers or uh, doctor offices. And, and, and I think that just speaks to the same thing. There's a lot of science that still needs to be figured out. Uh, Neil, as you heard as well from the people who are um, at the front lines every day and, and measuring well, what are the antibody levels? When do they go up? Do they always go up? What are the, does it mean in immunity? And we need to give scientists the time to really go through this before we make conclusions. Um, but I think eventually we're going to get there. And then it's really, again, also deploying this testing. How do we make it accessible for everybody? Because we need to know, um, you know, what the infection rates are. And it, 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 it impacts not only personal decisions, but also decisions of uh, how you open the economy. So it's a whole big field. And I'm sure Chris and you have more questions on that. But I think you know what, what, what was interesting um in our all of the the hours we spent trying to dissect this specific question was the complexity of some of the tests and you know we've spent a bunch of time talking to eric about some of the complexity on the test too on the podcast but mm -hmm. i wonder if you might try and sum it up in you know like un under a minute literally <laughs> without you know what the summary of how, how do you explain the complexity to somebody who who doesn't have the eight hours to spend with you um like chris right this moment 
so that he understands right. a little better about why this is not an easy answer and why you're not willing to just hand him a test and put your name on it. Yes. Yes. And, and, and so specific, I mean, we have two tests that we always consider, right? One is the test for an active infection where you're looking for the virus or, you know, as you probably heard in, 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 in a lot of press releases and public statements, the viral RNA, mm -hmm. and you can do that only when there's an active infection. So you need to time that right. And that comes from where the virus is replicating. So you have to go for nasal swabs or sputum or, um, a throat swab. And just to show you the complexity, when people validate tests, they do that from bank samples, right? So samples where you know the true answer. Um, but the sampling itself that is done by a nurse has some form of uh, a variance itself that can lead to false results. And so that's a process that you can't control when you're testing in, in a laboratory. And, and that has to always be considered and I think it's it's hard uh, for somebody who's not in this field to understand where where all the failure points are, but again, also you can't use that test once the you know symptoms have subsided, for example, right, and you're past your actual infection. So now you need to figure out when is the testing window to find out did I have an infection and my immune system responded to it by by forming antibodies, you know, that, that, that uh, basically recognize part of the virus particle. And that you can't do right away either. There's enough literature from, you know, other viruses we know to know how long it takes and you have to wait two to three weeks before you have a measurable response. In, in this case, you do it from blood um, as to what the antibody response may be but you need to understand what is the body responding to, which virus particles are there that were in, and how do I measure which type of immune response really will give me some form of immunity. And you need to really look at that in detail um, and study it in a lot of different samples to make sure that that response of the immune system and the antibodies that we're forming is kind of not only there in, in people who were severely infected, but also there in people with mild symptoms or nearly no symptoms, because it helps characterize how you go forward from there. And you really need to validate that also against other viruses, for example, uh, other coronaviruses like you know, common cold is a coronavirus, right? So you need to make sure that your tests don't give you a positive result for a virus that you're actually not interested in because you really want to know, is there an immune response for COVID specifically? So a lot of things to look for. And then there's, again, even for blood, the sampling question, uh, could I do this from finger prick amounts of blood? But, and what, what kind of degradation of the sample is allowable, right? And if you, if you send a kit to somebody and tell them, hey, prick your finger at home, drip your blood into this container, and then ship me that container back, you know, it may be in the mail for two days, it may get heat, um, that may degrade the blood, is the test still going to work um, after 48 hours or whatever the travel time of the sample is. So there's a lot of validation work you have to do. And, and a lot of angles you have to think about to really make it robust, because the, the last thing you want is to give false results and false assurance uh, to, to people. And then explaining the results as well. You can go onto blogs and find out that people get a negative antibody test and they're happy. They say like, wow, it's great news. I, I'm negative for the antibody. And they clearly haven't understood what a negative result means. Uh, <laughs> Dangerous. In, in that, right? 
it, 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 it's always in the context, right? If you're testing for an active infection and you come back negative, yeah, that's a good result. You don't have it. But then if you're testing for an antibody, you get back a negative result. That's not good because very likely in the current world, you want to be positive and assume that you will have developed some. Immunity. Dirk, I want to suggest so, you don't troll Twitter looking for these answers regularly during work hours, just you know, as a shareholder. No, no. Uh, absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, I'm pretty surprised by people's reaction, though. I'm with you. Like, <laughs> we're negative. Like, yeah, for no, what? I mean, <laughs> Tell me what you think you're negative for. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it, but it's part of what you have to do to understand how people will deal with this, and and you know, in, in particular in medical testing. You, that's where you have to have that physician interaction as well. We, we very often like to talk about patient-initiated, physician-mediated testing because we really want to drive testing towards uh, the opportunity that patients can initiate it. But you do want the physician involved in these because they need to explain the results so that people do not take away the wrong thing from the test results. Um, at least where it's medically relevant and, and a misinterpretation could lead, lead All right. To harm. So I, I don't want Chris to ask questions. So Chris, sorry. Um, <laughs> I have two specific questions. <laughs> um, you know, how many years do you think until we're kind of out of the fear, uh, the fear of COVID-19 as a biologist, not necessarily as a, a citizen, meaning I understand fear can last longer. And, um, do you think we'll see another pandemic in our lifetimes? And, you know, what kind of range do you give it until we see it again? Uh, that's actually, yeah, it's, that's a very detailed question. Uh, I, I know you're and German. Just, and you I know, know you're very detailed about I'm everything. Not, Is there any chance we could? Yeah, uh... yeah. <laughs> Let me give you a little, um, I think we will have to deal with COVID-19 through 2020 and probably into 2021. Not because I'm an expert in this, but but if you just go through what I explained in terms of how much we have to study still to understand this, and we all want to understand, does, it, does this give immunity? But until you have all those answers, we will need to be Do you careful. think we're more likely to go on um, summer vacation in 2022 then? Just, this is me asking you as a biologist, not not as an expert. Uh, I would, you know, I, I, I for sure hope that maybe we can do it in 2021. Um, but um, you know, 2022 is is probably a lot safer. I think the 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 what will help a lot is having a vaccine. Um, I think the whole um, the way this will go, and, and and you can't really skip process steps. As much as there's pressure to get this all done really quickly, um, you, you do st still need to do the right trials and everything. And if this shapes out to be more like hepatitis B, where you need, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you give a, a vaccine, then you do antibody measurements and then see what the response is. And you may have to do a second or a third before you truly get immunity. Um, then that may take longer. If we're lucky, it's not quite as like hepatitis B, then uh, things may go a little quicker, but it, it will take its time to get, to get an approved vaccine. And then you need to get the production up and you need to deploy it. Uh, and you need, again, testing to see if there is a, uh, the, the appropriate response to the vaccination. And then we need to still study how is the virus mutating and how much um, are we going to give immunity? Uh, is this going to be like flu where you basically have to go for a flu shot every year? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's everybody wants answers today, um, but we just sometimes science needs patience. And... 
uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows there's so many groups working on this, uh, but I personally am not planning on um, you know, things being normal again in 2020. It, it's going to take longer and um, we need to have certain precautions in place for a while. Dirk, you have a great imagination for diagnostics and testing. Have you, with your experience in this, um, seen any other opportunities that you imagine you could seize or would like to attempt? Not to distract you from the work you're doing now, but what do you think um, has opened up in terms of possibility for you as you watch this unfold? I think I think what this what this reemphasizes is um, that the the thought we started with, which is you need to enable at home testing you need to have you know if, if you want you have your own health ecosystem at home with devices that are available to the whole you know family that have modules that you can run certain tests um this this just has has more emphasis now because to to uh neil's previous question had you asked me 10 years ago about a pandemic i probably you know it it it, it wasn't you know, every public company does disaster planning and all that. You know, think about earthquakes and fires and what have you. I'm not sure that it was on the top of the mind that we will be shut down or significantly hampered as businesses uh, due to a pandemic, despite the fact that we had SARS before mm-hmm. and MERS and, and uh, uh, you know, these warning shots. Um, I think this this event will help prepare us better for the next one because there will be a next one and and a lot of it has to do with how how the world has evolved and how much we travel and how quick we can get from a to b and how quickly that will allow um infectious diseases to to hitch a ride to hitch a ride along the way (laughs) yeah no and and you know imagine uh ebola would would have a longer time in which you're symptom free you know, that would be a disaster yeah. because it's deadly, but you don't know, let's say, for one and a half weeks, you have it and, and you know how many places you can go. We have just seen it with COVID. People were at a conference and then they go skiing in the Alps mm-hmm. or wherever they went and then uh, they go somewhere else and you can you can trace it. And, 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 and so I think this happened and we need to react to it and we need to be much better prepared in how we set up testing and monitoring and taking care of people in a remote setting. And, 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 and I think a lot of innovation will be in that. Among that is what we had in mind, which is how to have uh, disposable devices that you can run at home and throw away, even if it's only for triaging, even if it only says, you know, you need to talk to a doctor versus no, you probably had an allergy or whatever. Um, so, uh, there will be other things, Chris, to, to your question. Um, if if you think about the space program and other things, and there's so many little side things that come out of that that, that turn into business. Else, right? Yeah, and you know, it's material. Wait, Chris, say that again, real quick. It, what were you saying? Titanium ballpoint pens came out of the. <laughs> or your toothpaste tube. <laughs> <laughs> Some. Right, but you, you see the necessity that 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 uh, comes out of some of these programs leads to so many 
so many new areas that that get funded um, because now now there's a real need there, and I think we'll see that here too. And and a lot of it will have to do with with how you test for this, how do you monitor it, um, and it, but it goes further as as you have seen. How many people have never thought about not going to a supermarket to buy food? And realize now, you know, it's actually pretty easy to not have to do that. And and so I think there will be opportunities in the whole logistics chain that um, that uh, will expand. Amazon is already a very big player in, in all kinds of logistics. But will they fast forward into more of the medical logistics and the sample logistics and, 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 and giving access um, on, on a more massive scale? Um, so, I mean, it's. I think there's 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 a number of different areas mm-hmm. uh, where this will will um, will make a huge change over the next five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine that at home testing could be um, so specific as to include something like a serology test, a test for yes. antibodies? Yes, absolutely. I think that and that's where I think you go from maybe very specific testing to you know, we, you, as, 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 as a, a father, right, you know, you always have in the family, in the moment the kids go to school, you have threats throat and all that kind of stuff. And it would just be good to already be able to test for, for some of these things at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you can expand that. It's just a modular saying, you, do I want to monitor an active infection? Uh, do I want to monitor an antibody response? Um, and uh, it, 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 it simplifies how much time you have to spend elsewhere, which is, I think, an, another important thing. Right now, nobody wants to spend time in the doctor's office and get infected by somebody else. But in general, it's also a time sink, right? Mm-hmm. How many times do you have to make a doctor appointment and then do a phlebotomy appointment, which is somewhere else, because it's all centralized through Quest and LabCorp and other bigger companies, which if you could shortcut that, and just do more things uh, in, in in a home setting, including the sample collection. Even if you don't interpret the results yourself, you can. You know, we have all the cloud computing, we have encryption, everything to handle a lot of this stuff through cloud transfer into an electronic health record, into uh, um, um, uh, portals that a physician can review. It, it's. I think there's a lot more opportunity there. You just have to focus on valuable information and that's i think the difference to a lot of the attempts that may have been there in the last couple years um when it gets too recreational it the question becomes why do i need to do this at that at that point it becomes a minority of the population that is interested that is willing to pay for it we're looking for what is high value information that is actionable um and how you can bring that kind of testing home in in if you know, the one thing and I told that in, uh, to Neil in previous discussions, um, managing chronic diseases um, with much more at-home testing would be uh, uh, fantastic, right? If you have autoimmune diseases, and in, in particular now, right, uh, think about all the, the people who are uh, on immunosuppressants who, who really have to be worried about getting infected. Can I have simple testing devices at home that allow me to uh, predict the flare-up so that um, my doctor can recommend more in real time to change my uh, um, drug treatment, dosing, and what have you. There's there's a lot of opportunity there 
And sometimes it requires an event like this to really get this off the ground and, and convert people over. Well, and, and Chris, we see uh, deals regularly for single point testing. Um, like we, uh -huh. we, we actually see tests for strep and we see tests for other bacterial um, uh, come across our desk, other bacterial infections come across our desk uh, regularly enough. It's rare that you get a chance yeah. to see a platform. Yeah. Well, this was... may be a question then for both of you. Then, um, you know, when you say you're looking for that high value data or information, what are the value markers you most are likely to search for? What, what, what information would you, uh, what markers do you attribute to um, seed the most value to specific data yeah. or information or tests? Yeah, Chris. So, so a, a way to answer that for me is actually was the opposite. What are when we're talking about recreational um, information? What I mean is, you know, um, there, there's a there's part of the population who may be interested in certain nutritional things and uh, uh, certain hormone markers mm -hmm. that are purely recreational. Mm -hmm. That for me is it, in the eye of the person who wants that information. It may be valuable, um, but not to everybody. Um, what I mean is, for example, anything that you measure that impacts how you treat a person, how um, you can make, the, how you can improve the quality of their life, life, that's a high value marker, right? right. So in, 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 in multiple sclerosis or any of those diseases predicting flare-ups, that's a high value marker. Um, anything where you need to change the drug treatment is a high value marker. But I would still argue infectious disease is high value too because there's an action, right? It, it, w there's, there's, there's a result of that. In, in you, you could argue, um, in, in those are, you know, sexually transmitted disease is one of those areas where people don't want to see a doctor. They're embarrassed. Uh, they don't want to talk to anybody. But if there's a simple way for them to test, have a, do I have an infection and, and get them into, well, if you are having an infection, you should see a doctor and be treated. That's still high value for me, right? Um, and, and I think that's what we're looking out for is, is, is there an action that follows it that is useful for improving the health, wellness, and, you know, uh, and, and, and fitness, even if you want, for, for the person? Does that, does that help? Yeah, tremendously. Thank you. Neil, you have anything you want to add to that? No. From a higher 30,000 foot view? No. Um, I, you know, I, the, the reason I was excited to invest in Juno is because I thought, you know, it was a chance to, um, you know, invest in a point of care uh, device. Let me, be, let me put it in more plain English. I, I invest in Juno because I thought, you know, they were creating the iTunes of biomarkers. And at some point using their device, we could test for, you know, hundreds of diseases, hundreds of viruses um, for astronomically low costs. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's why I'm afraid Dirk will sell us company too early. <laughs> <laughs> What's too early? You brought it up twice now. Right. And I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to go there some time. We, we can bring um, it up um, later. Like, <laughs> no, no, you know, time. you know what too early is 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 just like you you rarely meet a team that you know that can a hundred percent pull off every part of what they want to because they've executed at such a high level before. Like, so we meet great teams. Um, and whenever you meet such a great team, you just you want to see them uh, meet their entire vision 
of what's possible and not just um, a single product, even though a single product can really help and, you know, get to an exit that is, um, you know, more than happy for all of our investors. Um, mm-hmm. You know, seeing, seeing Dirk realize his entire vision changes the world in really short order, right? Um, so that, that's the thing that excites me about it. And I'd like to, to get a chance to potentially see that. Though uh, I'm sure if Dirk sells this company, he'll be back again. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. That was the third time you brought it. There we go. There we go. There we go. I promise not to bring it anymore up. Okay. Um, No, but I, I, I think in, in back to Chris, I really like your question because to the degree you have to, as a as a as a founder and an entrepreneur, you have to be visionary in where you see the future going, and then you have to be practical in how you get started with it, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, fast forward, I I think a world in which we really leverage the fact that we do have information, right? I I, I personally, I have my genome sequence and. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you try to learn something from that and it takes time for, you know, actually need millions of people sequence to make the right associations as to some of the predispositions and what they mean, but we're entering this where we can derive actionable results from some of this information. And in in particular, now that we live in a world where there's more and more variables, right? It doesn't have to be an Apple watch can be, can be whatever measures your temperature, heart rate, um, um, how many steps you take, uh, correlates that information, even where you live, humidity, uh, how much you drink. There's, there's many things you can monitor. And I think we get, we will monitor more and more even, um, without having to actively do it because that's a hurdle you you always want to take away. You want things to be simple, uh, but being able to aggregate all that and derive, um, consequences from that in a sense of saying, hey, you know, my algorithms detected, I have, you know, this genetic information, this wearable, uh, it would be good to do this and this um, test for this biomarker. And then you have to set up a home that will automatically do that and say, you know, this morning, this is what I'm going to test for, because uh, if there's uh, an increase in that biomarker, I'm going to notify the doctor. And then the doctor will look at it in the, in the charts and, and will will recommend something. That's kind of where you want to go. And I don't mean that in the sense of everybody is is driven by that, but it's taking 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 the opportunity that you have it in in improving how we can go about uh, managing our health. Right? In, in, in you want to you want to get to people before they're patient. That's what mm-hmm. we like to also talk about consumers, because if you're a patient, you may be already too late. You want you want to stay healthy and well. Well, that's a learning from COVID for sure, right? Right. If you're already um, having trouble breathing, or if you're advanced, it's too late. So yeah, Dirk, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, and um, what's next? I know um, you've been thinking of adapting your technology for COVID testing. Yeah, we're, we're yes, we I think in the in we categorize it between near term, medium term, long term. Um, as a company, we're we're very focused on reproductive health in and 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 basically disrupting kind of the market that we opened up in non-invasive prenatal testing previously, and and really bringing a different angle to it in terms of really looking at the whole workflow. 
of the interaction of a pregnant woman with a physician and how we can make that a better experience and how we can lower the cost of it so that we have much broader availability and adoption of valuable testing. Um, and that's just for practical reasons, because that's an area we know really well and an area we have executed well in before uh, as the first mover. And uh, But I think it will give us the, 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 the platform and basis to then expand into other areas. And a natural area is infectious diseases. And I think um, it, it would be prudent to um, make sure that... Uh, you know, uh, for the follow phases, if you want, of COVID and any future pandemics that there's the vision of, you know, what we have at home testing solutions for this um, becomes more of a reality um, so that um, what we went through here in the U.S., but also other countries in January, February, March, maybe in the future can be done much quicker uh, and, and more real time decisions can be made as to how severe it is and how we handle it. And so. Um, I think that's an area we remain very interested in. Um, we are you know, still relatively small, so there's a lot that uh, academic research and, and doctors and hospitals will still have to research, in particular to COVID. But I think it's a, it's a jumping off point to show the power of um, having disposable infectious disease testing that can be done at home. And that circumvents a lot of the issues that uh, we just just observed in the last couple of months. Dirk, you know, you and I were talking yesterday about how we thought, you know, the Sputnik helped launch the space race and how COVID may be launching. And you've talked about it a little bit here, um, the, uh, the health race, if you will. Um, I'm curious about what things you're most excited to see over the next, you know, coming little bit of time. Um, we'll call it under decade. Uh, what, what trends are you most excited to see, like explored? What specific technologies, if any? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it, the, 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 I mean, I'm mainly focused, of course, on, on, on diagnostics, despite the fact I think you, you, when you talk even about diagnostics, it's broader than just diagnostic testing because it is always also the patient physician relationship and, uh, how you uh, transfer data, how you make things easily interpretable uh, and handleable, and how you have telehealth solutions as well. Because you know, one thing we didn't talk much about, but it's a huge topic, is if you look at the hospitals, the uh, number of elective surgeries has gone down drastically, but they're actually driving a lot of the revenue of the hospitals. I think the other area, which is actually a bad thing as well is that people don't go to the physician office anymore because they're worried, but they should because they have chronic diseases or something else and they should be seen, but they decide not to. Um, and so I think there's what excites me is that this is an opportunity to revamp all of those processes that frankly um, evolved over decades and, and they, they're just taken as this is just how it is. And we have to deal with it. And I don't think it has to. We, we have uh, centralized processing uh, because that's where in the past the, the economics were the best. You know, you have these big companies like LabCorp and Quest that are really operational uh, with their own airplanes and what have you. And the test menu, very strong, but they come with a huge disadvantage in terms of turnaround time and all those things. And I think if you bring the right technology to the market um, that 
is cost efficient, then uh, you can change that whole paradigm. Um, and it will actually bring medical innovation to the market quicker too, right? If you, if you think about if there's a blood highway, which we have here in the US, uh, then the blood highway is controlled by the people who can draw blood. So that requires a phlebotomist and the phlebotomist costs money. So, you know, bigger companies may have their own phlebotomy network. Smaller companies who want to bring medical innovation to the market don't have that. So there's an access hurdle that will, de will delay the, the introduction of that innovation. Uh, so if you make yourself independent of the blood highway, you know, now students can move much quicker. And, and, and I think all these roads lead to at-home testing, at-home sampling solutions, remote, um, 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 you know, or telehealth if you want. There's this whole paradigm shift um, that can be impacted here that uh, is going to be beneficial for um, the consumer and the patient. And frankly, if done right, it will be beneficial for the physician as well because they can focus on treating the patient, not worrying about logistics uh, and scheduling uh, of appointments and getting calls on when test results are back and what have you. You wanna relieve them of all that burden so that it can spend the time they have really in that patient interaction. And that's what, what excites me because it, we need change in that. We have been doing it the same way for a long time. And the solution is not to, uh, um, to take things out of the hand of the physician. We just need to make it simpler and more efficient uh, for both sides. And, and, and that will hopefully allow um, to spend the time there is uh, really uh, uh, on that physician-patient interaction and getting the care transmitted that really needs to be there. I hope that kind of points in the direction of what it <laughs> starts to about. starts to um we, we I, you know i've i've been disappointed on on the the specificity of your answers today normally i get so, I, I, but i typically am right some of the time i think i get really good at uh, very specific yes and no's uh here's what i think um but uh um we we will go with your your framework though that's probably a lot better to think through Dirk, i want to well i think Yep. Sorry. Oh no, no, Chris. Is it's fine. I just, um, in thinking about this in in the in the diagnostic space specifically, is there a sort of Moore's law, or has have there been rapid advances in in spectrometry or in ways that you can get more detailed test results from smaller sample sizes? Is that I think, advanced? Yeah, I think. Yeah. So. The way I think you should think about this is um, you have to use the right tool for what the question is. And, and I've seen it in my career many times is that people come up with a fancy tool and apply it to a simple question. And that's not cost effective. But, um, you know, the, for example, right, a, a, a lateral flow readout can be extremely effective and lateral flow is, is a mature technology that is cheap to manufacture and it does the job depending on what the question is. But uh, at the same time, you, you know, of course, the innovations in how we look at genetic information, uh, sequencing technology, um, maybe, you know, uh, array technology, optical methods, all that um, that improves constantly will lead to cheaper and more efficient technology that can be deployed at home. And um, now, of course, if you use a readout that uses semiconductor technology, then Moore's law applies to that and applies to the cost reduction as well. And so I think 
um, maybe things haven't moved quite as quickly in the past as, as a lot of people wished, including myself, but within the next 10 years, they will. And then it becomes a question, not so much of the cost, once you hit that point where you can read many things at home, but it becomes a question of how do you responsibly transmit that information um, to the patient and, and, and still focus on what's actionable? Because the last thing you want to do is produce a lot of information that nobody knows the, what to do with, right? That's, the, that's where you The answer to your question, Chris, was so, no. I just want to point that out. Right. It's not a, it's not a, Chris, it's not a hard no. I think it's a, it's no, definitely there will be technology advances that, that will make an impact, but I don't think it's going to follow Moore's law in the way that we have seen it in other areas of, of, uh, well, and it, it, it could, it could pass it too, right? Like I actually, you know, looking at lots of diagnostics every day or regularly at, at Zoic, um, I, I do think the advancement of what I'm seeing now versus what I saw, you know, three years ago, I, you know, and thinking about where I think that the health race leads, um, while we can't give you a law today, uh, and while the answer might be technically no, I do think that we'll see some pretty spectacular advancements. Even just talking to my friend who works at HoloLens and the things that they're able to to share with you at uh, whether they share it with you or not, the things that they're able to read based on um, all of this VR equipment are very fascinating as well. So um, that's why I'm always convinced that tech right, companies are trying to become healthcare companies. Yes, and I, I agree with that. I mean, and I think a lot of um, companies that are in very different fields, I think will eventually um, make an impact in healthcare too. I mean, I brought up Amazon. I'm, I'm, I'm still convinced that Amazon eventually um, in a very measured way will encroach into that space. Uh, and, and it makes sense to me because there's a lot of logistics to solve in healthcare too that they can make an impact on, but there's also a lot of data um, that we can make an impact on. You probably heard a lot about, you know, big data and artificial intelligence. I, I tend to not like these buzzwords, but there is, of course, um, a lot of useful developments in that field that can be applied um, in, in order to make analysis quicker. And, and the, the health ecosystem that I brought up is, of course, using these things at the backbone, you know, because you, you need a decision maker and, the data gets so complex that it's very likely um, um, that a doctor needs some pointers because correlating all this data is incredibly difficult, not for the right algorithm, but for a human. Um, but um, you, you had a, another question in there that I think is important, and that is the sampling itself. And, and um, my warning is always, you, you have to know what you're looking for and how much is there because you can't magically measure something where there's not enough, right? We all have seen the public uh, debacles of certain companies that were promising something that just can't be done in that way. Um, uh, so you have to have the right scientific basis. And, you know, if, for example, if we're talking finger prick, you, you got to know how much is there uh, of what material in that finger prick and that will define the limits. Right, uh, a, a thought process. Right, if you have uh, only one molecule in a finger prick uh, per a certain volume, right, then uh, as you take your finger prick, you sometimes may have the molecule in there, and sometimes you don't. 
and there's nothing, no technology that will solve for when you don't. So you need to, you need to understand those limitations and then come up with solutions. But technology to, is a knife. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But you, you know what I mean, right? You, 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 you sometimes have to realize that a drop of blood for this application is just not going to be sufficient because I, I can't measure anything with the right sensitivity uh, for, for the biomarker I'm interested in. And then there's other applications where a few drops of blood are perfectly fine uh, and that's where you can as, enable things at home. Or, you know, we have many other sources that we can go for uh, in the body. You just got to study it. You got to know what you're looking for. And you got to know, can I actually do this from a sampling um, um, perspective? Um, and, and, and then I think things, things can work out fine. If you don't do that, that's when you get yourself in trouble. And it turns out that what you were measuring was garbage or flat out lied about what he can do. Yeah. And you know, we all know what company I'm referring to. We, we all know. Well, you also had a therpical moment, um, in, uh, which is even more amazing and a testament to your integrity. I'm also very happy to talk to you, Dirk, because of the way that your um, work and your diagnostic thinking is very patient focused. Um, you are thinking, of course, logistically and about the whole process, but very much about uh, that patient experience. So, yeah, and I think that's I prefer to look at it that way. And uh, there's there's and Neil knows this from from our discussions. There's very often a tendency to develop a technology and then figure out how you apply it, and and not understanding what is the true thing that or workflow or issue I'm solving here. And we, we tend to look at what is the workflow? What is the use case uh, that, that needs improvement? And then you figure out what are the different technologies that need to be developed or, or, or redeployed to really solve that. And that's how you get, I think, to much better impact um, than just you know, saying I have, I have a new sensor and that sensor can do this. We're great. And what next? <laughs> yeah thank you Dirk, Dirk um, we're going to move on with the we appreciate your time and we'd love to have you stay if you'd like we're going to talk a little bit about the market and a little bit about trends in venture capital and um, if you want to stay great if you want to contribute great and if not we understand uh, no I'm, I'm happy to listen in uh, we'll see <laughs> if I can contribute but um, I'm not, I want to see now Chris Chris your opinion on the state of the market. Chris go <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the Lazarus market it's uh, risen from the dead it's pretty remarkable um, but this is a, a lot of unknowns you know normally when we have a sustainable rise in the market it's led by smaller companies uh, medium-sized companies they're not participating this is sort of, re of a revival of the big companies that uh, were the last leaders so I'm I'm not fully um, convinced. I'm not as constructive on a continuation of this um, bull market or recovery from the lows as I would otherwise be. But it's not just a stock market. It's a market of stocks. And there are a lot of parts where um, there's the market has served us up tremendous value. So um, so it's, a, it's very mixed. It's a tale of two cities. If you're in the oil or energy market, this is, might be a lifetime opportunity or a lifetime of pain. We've never seen negative 
oil prices before. We may never see them again, but lots of things are unprecedented in this time. Uh, we just talked about the pandemic, which is certainly among them. Chris, I'm um, betting that you obviously still think we're headed into a bear or we're you know, in a bear now. Um, what would need to change? And yeah. like, what would you need to see as a signal that would, would change your opinion on that? Um, I, so, you know, there, I guess there's probably like a hundred things that could do it. Maybe, maybe you can, maybe yeah, you give us a, a little market. bit of enlightenment about the framework of how you would think about that even. Well, everything right now, I think is getting the Barry Bonds asterisk, right? There's the COVID, uh, through no fault of their own companies and the economy fell off a cliff. That isn't a durable enough reason for me to believe um, that we can just skip over this valley of uh, abysmal economic <laughs> right. performance. And I think, too, you know, we're already starting to see it shake out, of course, starting in the shale patch um, in the, with the fracking companies, the bankruptcies, the dividend cuts, um, capital expenditure cuts, which, again, all these ripples are emanating out um, from really just this tremendous lack of revenue. Um, Delta announced that their um, April sales are down 95% ticket sales. So um, they're certainly uh, the, the plight of companies in travel and leisure is unevenly, uh, you know, they've been unevenly hurt by this virus. It's not been a, a very level playing field. Some Companies have benefited from it. Of course, we talked about Amazon. But again, it, to just skip over this or think that um, somehow the fiscal or monetary authorities can remedy this when real profits uh, and earnings are what drive stock prices and the value of companies is to me to just gloss over something that's too important to miss. And also the signature profile of a bear market is you know a, a sharp sell-off followed by a reflexive rebound and then a more long and drawn out fundamental decline. And that um, I think is still in the cards as we start to digest the real economic impacts of COVID. Interesting, so what, what would you be actually saying to your, your clients today based on where the portfolio sits in general? Well, no one can tell you, um, you know, a, a lot of questions revolve around if I've got cash that I didn't deploy, is now a time to deploy it or have I missed the opportunity? If I am um, fully invested, should I consider taking some profits? And, you know, a lot of the larger investment banks and analysts we follow, of course, um, are kind of monolithic, like stay invested. Um, but I can't say that, um, you know, give advice in a general sense for everyone. It, it does depend on your time frame and other factors, but that's a, a big one. The, the real fact of the matter is, you know, if you own companies or investments with um, strong balance sheets and solid cash flow and you didn't pay too much for them, you should hold them. If you see some that are out there like that, you should buy them. <laughs> no one can tell you to spend all of your money today, but equally no one should tell you not to invest some of it when you see a very compelling opportunity. So it is mixed, but again, I think mostly we're still guarded because we do expect um, maybe not a revisitation of the lows, but certainly some challenge to this rebound. It's not 
um, based on anything fundamental. Um, and again, too, it's uh, being driven, especially by small retail investors, um, larger investors, insiders, those, uh, the so-called smart money groups are generally net sellers. And then, you know, if you paid attention to uh, Warren Buffett, <laughs> American Idol in investing, um, his, his show on Sunday, the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meetings, uh, meeting, which he delivered um, uh, through Yahoo, um, was very strange. First, there was no audience, which is always <laughs> Well, it was delivered on Yahoo. I mean, um, let's start there. <laughs> But the whole thing is kind of surreal. It's just part of this world we're in now. But I've never seen um, him so cautious. Maybe, you know, he is 89 years old. And uh, he did hold up some very simple cards. The last one saying, don't bet against America, which is one of his rallying cries. But it sort of sounded more like a whimper than a cry. Um, uh, maybe that's a little too harsh, but definitely it lacked the, the drive and energy of, of uh, his previous um, encouraging rallying cries. This, uh, I think, is important because he has his finger on so many points in the in industrial America through his ownership of um, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, the rail line, you know, he can see what's being moved around the country uh, in terms of rail car loadings. He can see um, with everything up to seize candies, <laughs> what what uh, consumers are spending or not spending. It's just uh, fascinating. And he gets that information in real time. So his caution is something certainly is not easy to dismiss uh, and a share in a, in a measure of it, too. Um, and, you know, he also just uh, roundly sold all the right. airlines he, he owned. He had right. owned for very long. And he didn't make any excuses to his credit. He just uh, said he made a mistake. And he didn't think that uh, passenger miles were going to recover anytime soon. So, um, you know, again, there are some sobering words and some thoughts. But uh, first, you know, we'll survive, I think. Uh, this will hopefully bring about some more uh, sober pricing in, in parts of the market that have gotten away from us. Um, but it's also very fascinating to see, normally when um, a market changes, uh, if there's a bear market and then a resumption or a, a bull market ensues, the leadership changes. That hasn't happened. Um, small and mid cap stocks haven't participated to the same extent as the larger companies have. That's a um, leaves us less than constructive. And then again, it's small retail investors who've been driving this rather than um, more sophisticated or larger investors and certainly insiders buying their own shares. Um, and that's just the, <laughs> the qualitative aspects. Quantitatively, you know, buybacks have been slashed. Capital expenditures have been slashed. And buybacks were one of the biggest sources of support for the stock's prices in this market. There have been huge buybacks. I don't want to talk about the politics of it all, but just Are you sure? that was a source of open market. <laughs> well, no, I am. <laughs> no, it's traded, you know. It's, uh, but but because that'll take us down another path. But I just think that's a just from the supply and demand and the demand aspect of it. Um, that that uh, pillar of demand is now crumbling, um, 
And, you know, corporations, it's very funny. It just reveals they're made up of people and they're just like us, um, like retail investors. Most corporations um, buy the most at the top and the least at the bottom when their shares are undervalued. They're not doing buybacks, but on the way up, they're buying a lot. So. You know, um, it, it's been it's definitely been interesting to watch. Dirk, I'm curious. Do you have any specific questions? Um, not about your specific stock portfolio, just to throw that out there, yeah. but about the market. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what I'm, I'm most wondering about, and because, of course, you know, you, you talk to people, you talk to financial advisors, and, and they, they tell you all along, oh, the market has already priced everything in. They, they said that in <laughs> March, and, and they said it in April, and, 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 and only if the numbers are a lot worse than what was anticipated is going to go down. I have a hard time with that because I don't know that anybody knows how the next three, six, nine months are going to unfold, right? You brought up airlines, rental cars, um, hotels, uh, but also restaurants around the town, right? Um, I, I'm not quite sure how this is really going to unfold and if we have really seen the worst yet, just because we're looking at unemployment rates or whatever. Um, it's and, and that's kind of where my question goes is, how do you in the absence of really knowing what's going to unfold and how we're going to deal with this, um, how do we even know how the recovery will look like? And there's no doubt, you know, that once you can be totally back to normal, things will, will except for the people who don't have money to spend anymore, uh, other things will go back to normal. But there's all this in-between phase where I'm just not sure how long of a um, uh, air if you want uh, people have to withstand this and and you see the signs right there's 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 restaurant chains that basically say it's, it's sorry we have to close down we're uh we, we will not survive this and we're we're not going to recover and it's not the mom and pop shop um but it's actual solid chains that decide this is it yeah and even those that seem they still had some years of life left in them like a neiman marcus or something they're retailers it's uh in the same way that the the virus itself, uh, the COVID disease, has affected uh, certain groups disproportionately versus others, it's landed unevenly on the economy. Um, clearly, hotels and uh, retails and shopping malls and opera houses. I mean, when are you going to get three thousand? Not for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're right, Dirk. No one knows the future ever. It's just that most days, you know, Friday looks like Thursday. <laughs> it's been made clear to us that that <laughs> is a luxury and is not always the case. Um, but this is a, a very open question, and we think about it a lot. Um, if we look across this valley, what are indispensable industries, um, and can they be you know, and do they have solid balance sheets to make it? And can they be had at a reasonable or a, a good price? Um, and do they have excellent management? <laughs> there are a few other bill, you know, markers. But when I look at this, the um, essential nature um, of that is important. I just, uh, and also you have to wonder, like, uh, one of the things that, that, always irks me when we have a crisis. Um, for example, this time the Congress, you heard congressmen saying, well, 
we need airlines when we come out of this. Well, of course, we're going to have airlines. If it's not Delta, someone right. will own and fly those planes. Someone will have productive assets. <laughs> you don't want them as an investor taken away from you, though. <laughs> you want those productive assets when the economy comes back. So again, having the staying power is important. So we, you know, it's um, it's unknown, but there are some that are just too tough. Like you know, um, I mentioned opera, theater, things like that. Not necessarily as investment themes, but just as an example of how it's really impossible to know now when those things so come do, back to where they were or close to. So, do you think uh, you know along the lines of what you asked me? Um, what are industries and, and subsectors that you see that suddenly become more important? I can, I mean, just from my own experience, um, Zoom for right. you know, kids' school and all that, that wasn't on the radar. Right? Um, and now um, uh, you, your bandwidth at home is not sufficient anymore because the kids have school through Zoom meetings and um, you know cloud solutions and what have you. I think there's a whole field of, uh, technologies evolving there that, you know, in parts were already there, but maybe lived uh, a different life. And now they're, 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 they're moving to the prime spot. Are there other industries that are majorly benefiting? Uh, by the way, we also, we, you know, uh, Airbnb, you have all the, you know, gig economy, as people refer to it, that, that got um, um, uh, impacted by this. And, and we'll see how any of that recovers. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the super hosts are um, themselves filing for bankruptcy, unable to meet mortgage payments without. Well, I, without I mean, Airbnb I, I thought it was an okay business model for a while. Actually, I was like impressed by it. Um, you can mm-hmm. own your own mini hotel chain um, without having to put up a lot if you're willing to to hustle on Airbnb and market yourself. Suddenly, it no longer works. Neil, there have been so many assets that two months ago looked impregnable <laughs> mortgage bonds that were 20 years old where there was a huge amount of residential real estate equity backing them <laughs> these pools of mortgages have suddenly become questionable because people can't pay it, uh, or need deferments and we don't know how that's going to unfold it's it's fascinating <clears throat> how some of what seem the most secure assets or, or wonderful business models have <clears throat> met this um, crisis and have um, stumbled. Um, But Dirk, to your point, I think you mentioned Zoom. It's fascinating. You also mentioned uh, telemedicine. All of those things I'm I'm pretty impressed by. Zoom's a free service. So I don't understand the stock price action, except that it's garnered the public's imagination, which is enough, I guess, (laughs) in the short term to drive it higher. But as a free service, but I also am impressed with how quickly they've responded and made the service better. Uh, and those improvements, I think, are are fascinating. Um, the some of the existing infrastructure, I think, um, <clears throat> which was already uh, inexpensive, and here I'm thinking of the whole energy complex. I mean, I'm with everyone that we should preserve hydrocarbons, but still. They generally uh, are responsible for powering most of the world. Um, And that whole old uh, energy space has just collapsed um, for all sorts of reasons. But this is probably um, generationally uh, an opportunity. Um, That's not anything that's necessarily new. It's just uh, 
one of those things that has been affected by a demand shock that's tremendous, um, as with the airlines and some others. And then on top of that, which is unique to the oil markets, you've had a supply shock that's been tremendous <laughs> and foolish, but tremendous. So you add those two together, you get a really unique cocktail that's a once in a lifetime concoction, maybe. We'll see. Um, the problem with investing in anything energy is the price of oil and the politics around it. But um, that's one space where things look very, very inexpensive, um, extremely cheap generationally. Shipping um, and some of the transportations and logistics companies, um, you know, we those are the backbone of global commerce. Um, and they've been forgotten both from um, the legacy of the trade war with China and now just the basic shutdown of the ports, which are gradually reopening. So um, those things look um, very attractive just from a, a standing. Are you feeling better about the uh, currency of both India and China right now um, as a I guess it's going to go down. Are you feeling good about uh, shorting those currencies? Well, India's got real economic. Yes, but if China ahead, devalues the currency, um, as you suggested, it could like happen next week. It seems likely India would probably follow suit. So, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the dollar has been just tremendously strong, as it usually is in a crisis. Like, um, there are a lot of uh, dollar liabilities, even in foreign countries, uh, dollar denominated bonds. And that creates a scramble for more dollars. And it's the most widely held currency. Um, so it's just risen, really, in, uh, in the face of most others. The, the ruble and certainly emerging market uh, currencies um, like India's, uh, the, the Turkish lira, all of those things have fallen dramatically against the dollar. I think that China holds the a tremendous weapon in, in that. Uh, offshore yuan, and if they devalue it, it would send deflationary shocks throughout the, um, through a lot, especially of the developing world. Um, and it would affect the U.S., of course, um, because they hold a lot of assets here and abroad. Um, that's a, that's something they may not choose to do, but they can always threaten to do, which is a good uh, <laughs> negotiating tactic. Wait, I, I don't hear you have. talking about shorting companies so, or, who, or currencies or commodities very often. Is that something you ever really do? Um, I did in the banking crisis where I felt I had an advantage and the, the, the risk reward was very asymmetric. Um, right now, I just don't feel that I have the same insight um, in a lot of ways. I do think consumer spending is going to drop. I do think certain companies like credit card companies, et cetera, may feel the pinch, but I don't think I have any unique insight Got it. that gives me uh, an advantage that makes sense. to make um, play yet. May, maybe change, let's move to the, the, the VC corner and actually talk a little bit about some of the trends in, in venture capital. Um, and, and before we ask Dirk about what he thinks about valuations of companies um, <laughs> and where they're going and fundings, <laughs> um, you know, I, Kind of notable to me, and I, you know, Dirk will definitely ask you about the valuation of, of sports teams here. Uh, you can join the discussion here. Uh, I saw this a couple of funds start, um, mm -hmm. or you know, in, in the news, um, in the venture capital news, the private equity news, that we're going to buy minority ownerships in 
sports teams. Um, and I thought that's pretty interesting. Can can the NBA, can the um, you know EPL, English Premier League, or um, Bundesliga, just because you know Dirk's German and he probably likes some soccer team there, um, can these valuations of these sports franchises stay so large and um, or is, are these funds really just forming to to buy out when people are more distressed than the minority shareholders i'm just kind of curious in general get you know can do you think the cowboys can really be worth two billion five years from now i, I know you don't specialize in investing in sports teams let me start with that <laughs> yeah hey, both of you i'm just yeah, just curious you what you think in general <laughs> Dirk and, 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 and hey. yeah, I'm pretty quiet on that one. I I don't know if I have any unique insight uh, as Charlie Munger with no that. vanity ownership. Me, okay, nothing to think. You don't think about it, but I do think a lot about that now because in the same way we talked about the the Met Metropolitan Opera, when are you going to get you know seventy five thousand people in a stadium again? Um, and what does that do to valuations? And especially if you're a second-tier team like the Atlanta Hawks in the NBA or something, what happens to your valuation? Um, Dirk? But, but think about also, I mean, it's not just people in the stadium. It's everything yeah. else in terms of the TV rights for, you know, it, it, and it, all of that takes a major Aren't hit. TV rights and worth more? And that's why. Um, with us being stuck at home? But I, but I don't think that's going to continue if you have empty stadiums. I'm not a big TV person, but have you watched American Idol without the audience? The ratings have collapsed down some 56% in the week by week. It's just amazing to see that amazing in the true sense, awesome in the sense of inspiring awe, to see those ratings collapse. Without an audience, there's something in the human condition where it's not exciting. I noticed this with the Buffett uh, dialogue. Without the audience to cue us into how we should I noticed with this with Jimmy Fallon. I, I watched um, his opening monologue one day, and I was like, this is terrible. I really, I actually really enjoy the audience, and not a laugh track couldn't make up for what I thought was missing. But that's that's exactly why they have a laugh track, right? To give you it's something about the the mimicry of human nature that we see and that inspires us. And I'm only bringing this up because I think without the large live audience, you do lose value. Um, even in terms of the TV rights, who's going to watch it? And you know those things uh, lead to so so the, these funds are in for an interesting place in the it's short and medium term. Um, because I do think some of this stuff will recover when we mm -hmm. can go back. Like, why wouldn't we go and enjoy um, seeing American Idol live, I guess, is, is your example. Right. But, Neil, also think about it that way. There is a capital need with any of these, right? I mean, you, you, can, you can follow the headlines. Not every, you know, let's take because you brought it up. I'm German. Of course, I follow the German Bundesliga. Uh, although, I, I would Oh, you seem so nice up until just now. Uh, manager, <laughs> um, but um, it 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 is it, it it is not easy to go you know 
that long of a time in the active season, right? Because we're not talking off season, we're talking active season and loss of income uh, while maintaining salary cost and what have you. So you could also argue there's an opportunity to buy a stake in something that will recover its value in the long run, but you it, will It's certainly get interesting it for cheap to see. And, and, and interesting, you know, it, it made me just think about the themes I don't think about in, in venture capital in general. Um, one of the things we're obviously wrestling with, along with everybody else, um, is the amount of financings that are that we're looking at is the lack of financings happening in the market. Um, when do you think VC financings will start to resume um, um, pace, Dirk? Um, any thoughts about that? I know you don't study that market all the time. You you probably are just a yeah. an occasional random participant, occasional participant, not a <laughs> not a random, not a random, yeah, yeah not a random. That that will be. <laughs> but um, so I think we should we should potentially clarify what we're observing right now. And I'm I'm not saying that my sample is is the biggest, right? You probably have a better uh, view on this, but. There's a psychology here that uh, when this all started, um, probably uh, of VC funds preserving their resources and, and, and the first order of business being, let's make sure that the portfolio companies we have can be supported before we take on new. Then you may move into the phase of saying, hey, um, but we have time on our hands. I, I've, I've, I have, a, you know, I don't have um, hard data, but I, I feel like um, stories are being listened to more because there is more time. Um, but um, because the personal element is missing, um, you know, you may have dragged out processes and maybe a little gun shy to act unless there's a super opportunity. So I don't know if, if you know, I think there's going to be, a, or there were in the last you know, months, uh, more deals being looked at because there's more time but I'm not sure that many of them closed. But um, I think recently we did um, see activity on IPOs um, for, for some of the pharma startups that looked actually pretty good. And um, there's probably a mix of seize the good opportunities you see and take advantage uh, of it now uh, and invest. And uh, maybe uh, in the current times, you can get a deal at a lower valuation than you would have had um, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this from the perspective of the VC. Um, I think this will, um, will improve quicker. The only question is, um, where in the diligence process do you need that personal interaction and that physical visit? Um, and, and I'm speculating, but let's say when it gets to certain instrumentation, whatever, what are the means of diligencing the opportunity in a remote fashion? And a lot of it will also go back to what's the team, what's the track record of the team. Uh, so I think you, you you have to shift in how you diligence an opportunity, given the fact that there's still no travel. and We don't know when travel will, will open up. So you being the investor, you know, you can reciprocate maybe my stuff. Yeah, I, I actually think this, um, people will stay scared. Lots of funds will close. There are lots of big funds that, that closed after the 08 downturn. Um, 08, 09, you know, crisis. And I think this will be no different. I think we're going to see lots of people who get hesitant to invest. Those who survive are the ones who, and thrive, are the ones who follow their their thesis. Because, um, you know, it was constructed and it still works to some degree, unless your thesis is just to follow trends, um, you know. <laughs>
unless unless you're soft ink um um you know so so it's interesting to watch and obviously the number of financings is down dramatically um when i think about the best way to meet a team um i don't actually worry as much about meeting the team as strange as that may sound um i didn't worry about investing in your team before i met you um or, or coming to your lab because we spoke so much of the same language and you informed us about what we were missing. Um, and we understood your technology and we understood like the data couldn't have been fabricated. Um, so it was easy for us to, you know, to say that made sense. Of course we did come visit you, but I would have been nearly as comfortable making the investment without it. Um, and, and that's probably the case for a lot of the things we look at. Um, now, there are some things you want to see in person just to see how it's working. Um, we invested in a company called ODS, and they have a Raman spectroscopy, uh, we'll call it PEN, a light pen that can detect uh, cancer cells um, by touching human tissue. And so we wanted to see it in a uh, oncology surgery. Um, so we wanted to go see that in person. We thought that made more sense. Um, so it kind of depends on the phase, depends on... Uh, the VCs and whether they really understand the space or not, um, and whether they're really following it, um, following a new trend or something that they've invested in a bunch of times and are trying to add to their portfolio with. Um, does that start to help you out in some way thinking about it, Dirk? You no, know, no, absolutely. I think I, I see it the same way. You know, if you take the drug discovery area, for example, there's a lot you can do. Um, you know, because you're looking at really, you know, you know, more what pathways are you impacting and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot you can do remotely. I think it's, it's a case by case, but um, from the companies, um, you know, the discussions we had as Juno, but also the companies uh, I'm, I'm advising, I, I think if you have a strong case, you still get the audience. Um, but if you're a little bit off the beaten path, it may get a little more difficult, right? So the value propositions that, that, that resonate even more now is when you talk about um, at-home sampling, at-home testing, uh, and it goes through, you know, microbiome, many different areas, right? Where as long as, as um, you can show how you avoid uh, the complications, the logistical complications, and the fact that your business may not be impacted by the pandemic. Yes, because that, you know, obviously, gets you much investing in venture capital is a long, longer cycle. So, um, you know, a lot of the investments won't even be thinking about the pandemic the same way when it's it'll be, you know, kind of in the rearview mirror, even though we can still see it. Um, you, there are kind of a couple more things I'm curious yeah. about related to how you're you're mentoring companies. I know you mentor. Um, over a dozen companies um, um, and you know it's always been kind of good flow for you and you were able to hire <laughs> even one of our one of one of the uh, great people who work at uh, your company from from a company you once mentored um, I, I've been reading more about how people are talking to their founders about growth mindset versus mission critical mindset you know I've been talking to uh, a number of friends who drew down all of their loans before they violated covenants about growth um it's been interesting yeah. <laughs> meaning you had to have essentially you know 20 percent month over month growth and if you didn't hit that you you couldn't borrow again and of course you weren't going to hit that so people started started borrowing against their their bank loans um, um I, i'm curious how you're coaching you know some of the younger entrepreneurs even 
how you're talking to the experienced folks, Dirk, about uh, mission critical versus growth. Yeah, and so so the 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 companies I advise a have to hit some personal interest, right? Because time is time is limited, and I want to make an impact. and And the easiest way to make an impact is in areas that you personally care about and are passionate about. Uh, among them, for example, you know, I, I do uh, I'm very interested in the microbiome field, um, and, as well as in oncology. Uh, in, in oncology, you know, I have a variety of interests. The company uh, I'm advising is in serotonin monitoring. Um, there's also a company in veterinary um, uh, liquid biopsy, uh, dog cancers and things like that. So I, I, pick, I pick where I can make an impact. And the, the impact you can make differs um, kind of along the lines of what you said. You, you, you look uh, very often if it's a more inexperienced team, what you need to give guidance on is really how to execute and stay focused right because there's there's always a limited amount of funding initially available and you need to hit your value inflection points so it can start with what are those value inflection points that you want to hit because you need to raise the next round um and how do you get to them and how do you stay focused on that uh but it can also be just guidance on um how to do a strategic plan how to um organize board meetings how do you find the right board members right it can it can vary and i'll 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 in the context do what i think is the right thing to I mean, advise are you, on where i, I, I want to get more to the heart not. of the point i was looking uh, for are are you telling companies to live to fight another day as often or are you telling them um, hey, it makes sense that you you actually push ahead further or push again at the same speed you were at before. In general, what's what's you know I'm I'm forcing you to generalize here. So, I yeah no I I think um, I usually and that is based on experience. I try to advise companies to not overspend and not overgrow too quickly because. Um, you don't want to find yourself in a position where your runway is three months and you it, that just leads to bad deals if you get any. Um, but there are a few exceptions where I would argue that you need to raise more capital because you need to aggressively show adoption. And that, unfortunately, um, you know, if you're in the consumer marketing, it requires funds to um, make those, you know, marketing campaigns on Facebook and what have you to show adoption. And if you don't invest the right amount of capital into that, then um, you get stuck, right? Is there no traction because you didn't spend enough money or is there no traction because there's no interest in your product? And you have to get to that critical volume. And so that, that's what I mean is you have to advise on, on what, what is in the context necessary. If you're already a commercial entity or early pilot phase commercial, you want to invest and show adoption. But if you're in an R&D stage and you overspend on activities that are not uh, leading you to your value inflection point, then you're wasting money and, and that may harm you later. I, I couldn't agree more. One, one more reason I knew I didn't need to meet you. <laughs> um, we'll end by playing the predictions game, Chris's favorite game of all um, here. Um, I asked you, and, and he laughs because um, I think we're all terrible at predicting things. And yet people ask me a lot about prediction. I ask Chris a lot about prediction. It's just something as a society, we're all trying to understand everything for tomorrow, right? How is it going to go? You know, is it going to ruin my vacation in 2022? Yeah. Um, 
as I referenced earlier, right? My summer vacation. Um, <laughs> the question asked tells more about the questioner than the answer you're, you're receiving. You know there's a solution, Neil. You just have to buy uh, uh, the right car, DeLorean, and then just go back into the future. That's got to be the greatest thing I've ever heard on this this podcast right there. <laughs> um, I, you know, the next pandemic, um, how many years do you think we'll see one? And then if so, how many years? You didn't quite answer that earlier. Um, I think we'll see another one. Uh, I, I have a hard time seeing when, but if you look historically, and, and it's interesting that you keep going back to that question because I asked myself, did we really not have one or do we just keep Well, unless they affect us, we forget about them. Enough? And yes. And so if you look back, everybody referenced the, the Spanish flu, but then people forgot about what happened in the 50s, uh, which was... Uh, uh, I think or a bowl in the 70s. The Asian yeah. flu. Um, there have been uh, there have been there have been in in kind of a so let me let me change it in, in America. Let, let me actually um, be more specific. Uh, yeah, but America was impacted by those too. Don't forget that. So Do you think I we'll think see we'll one probably that see another one in the next the ten years. Way? Interesting. Yes, Chris, keep that in mind as you're as you're looking at the management of these these public companies of yours. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the, you you uh, Chris, you laugh because I think everybody that's the reaction it is. Yeah. But as a public company, right, there, there has to be uh, um, all the planning for, for any of these eventualities. And I think those plannings will change. Dirk, you're right. I, I think that the cost you and that efficiency will take a backseat to redundancy and readiness. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I think there's going to be more onshoring. The supply chains are going to have, I mean, we've been running just-in-time inventory, which was hailed as a miracle. But there once the supply chain breaks the the shelves are bare there's nothing you you know there's no inventory anywhere to be had um it's extremely efficient but not but it's very fragile and i think those things are all being exposed and will um, change last quick prediction yeah. prediction question for both of you um and i will also take a, a guess on this this is just an uh yes or no so dirk no explanation pretty please um, do, do you think in the next two years that beds in this country and hospitals on average will increase from where we are today? Yeah. Hospital yes. beds. I think so too. And I don't really like that answer. There's a lack of capacity to begin with in lots of places, but, um, yeah, I think so. Chris? You and I are playing for charity, Chris. So we're going to track this. Say, can I say the same a number? Is that a, about so the yeah, same? So yeah, within Ten, about the same would be within 5%, right? right? No, two two years from now. Mm-hmm. Two years from now. About the same. Within, yeah, plus okay. or minus 5%. Plus yeah, five. so I'm going over Probably on you for the bet, just so we're clear then. So six and up and I win. That was probably not a good bet for you. <laughs> but a good bet for the Danny Barker <laughs> Foundation, I think. Um, 
I, you know, I think that's probably it for the podcast, uh, Dirk. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. It was, uh, it was great discussion. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope at some point we can do this in person and uh, maybe, you know, meet all the way in Escondido. Oh, oh, Escondido. Okay, yeah, that's not going to be hard. That's all for today's episode. I'm Neil Modi, joined by my ever-insightful co-host, Chris Heidel, and I'd like to thank Dirk for taking the time to appear on today's podcast and wish him and his family good health in these trying times, and all of you as well. I hope all of you are doing well, keeping safe, keeping distancing, and of course, becoming better human beings. Thanks again for joining us on this journey. Please leave us a comment and a rating whenever you get a chance and whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. Thank you. No, I think it's important though. It, it's actually the the way you think has expanded my thinking for sure. So yeah, it's great. He reminds. It, it's funny, Neil. I see um, how we get along too. I can't give a simple answer, and I appreciate that about Dirk. <laughs> I'm always trying to think through all the nuances and the complexities. And by night, Chris plays Batman and Buddha. You, you know, a lot of times I want to go in, and I was talking to this about Callahan the other day, a lot of times um, I need to be the expert. When I'm with Dirk, I just want to be the student, right? He just There's a lot to learn. Um, and, you know, I just want to contribute wherever I can. What about you? What's got you busy today? Oh man, tremendous amount of research. The stock market is rallying. Um, <laughs> like nothing's happened. But, uh, the economy looks like it fell off a cliff. <laughs> it didn't, doesn't look like it. It did fall off a cliff. Let's just be clear about this. Well, it did, yeah. The man, the myth, the legend. The man, the myth, the legend. Dirk Vanden Boom. We can't, we can't hear you, Dirk. <laughs> <laughs> Dirk is quiet as a mouse. <laughs>